You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode 22. Today, Claire and I are discussing various diets your patients may need, part three. Hey everybody, I'm Claire Pyers. And I'm Fee Gitchen. Today we're discussing part three of the various diets your patients may need. In episodes 19 and 20, we discuss gluten-free, dairy-free, bad sugars and bad fats, paleo, autoimmune paleo, low histamine and low tyramine approaches with patients and when to use them. So if you miss those episodes, you can go back to hear what we have to say about those diets. This week, we are discussing ketogenic diets, including to carb or not to carb, fruit lymph cleanse, vegetarian, vegan or meat, organic or not, raw or cooked. The Heavenly Chi Podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi Podcast to your favourite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's show. Hi everybody, welcome to today's episode. I hope you've been enjoying our discussions about nutrition and different diets and we'd love to hear what type of work you're doing with food and how you're combining this more modern information about nutrition into Shirley-Our practice and we're going to also discuss ways to make sure that we are also incorporating those elements of the Chinese medicine wisdom with how we select foods seasonally and thermal natures in with whatever other diet frameworks we're using with our patients. And so lately Claire's been running a really successful weight loss group Hmm. and they're using, I think, mostly the ketogenic diet. So I'm going to turn to Claire and ask to tell us about the ketogenic diet. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, for the last six months or so I've been running a group, um, like a multi-bed acupuncture group for um for people who are interested in weight loss and it just so happens that the group is entirely women and they're all women who have had difficulty in not necessarily in losing weight a lot of them have done you know famous famous weight loss programs weight watchers and jenny craig and a few other well-known weight loss approaches they've calorie counted and they haven't been able to keep the weight off and so um, and I think if we kind of broaden the topic, not just ketogenic diets, but how do you support patients to lose weight? One of the things that has been valuable outside of the specifics of what to eat and when and so forth has been that group dynamic. And so having, um, in our clinic, we have a, a multi-bed area. We have a multi-bed set up. And so that lends itself really well to a weight loss support group where the women come in each week and they um they step onto the scales and get weighed and it's all you know the information is not disclosed but yeah they share in their successes they call it the the lie detector when they step onto the scales which is quite um it's a nice little joke that we have each week and then <laughs> you know on we've got a private facebook group and they kind of message message each other if they can't calm they're like oh you know throw the scales out on you know under a, under a bus or something <laughs> Um, anyway, so it's, that's been really successful. It's been some women who've been with me um, since the start and some of them have 
lost a really significant amount of weight. And one of the things that they're finding is that the ketogenic approach has been really successful for them. They haven't felt um, hungry or deprived like they have in other approaches and they've also been able to incorporate into their daily eating in a way that feels manageable for them long term. So the basics of the ketogenic diet is that you're putting your body into a state of ketosis. So when your body is burning glucose for fuel, then um, like the, the body prioritizes glucose. Having glucose levels that are too high can be dangerous, causes inflammation on the cellular level. Once your body reaches a stable level of glucose, then um, your body can then switch to burning fat for fuel instead. And one of the byproducts of fat metabolism is the production of ketone bodies, and they are excreted through the urine. So one of the things to do with the ketogenic diet is that you can get hold of some um, pathology test strips that are called keto sticks. I think they're put out by, I think it might be, it's, it's one, of the, one of the known um, pharmaceutical brands. Um, and they're just little sticks that your patients can wee on. Um, first thing in the morning and usually before dinner, they can do it twice a day. Just for some people, it's just easier to remember it to do it first thing in the morning. It needs to be done um, before eating, so you need to have not eaten recently. Um, and you want to have a low, a low level of ketones. If you've got high levels of ketones or even moderate, then it means that your body is too much into that ketogenic process and that's where you're putting yourself at risk of kidney damage um, and that's where you know diabetic ketoacidosis for example is something that can happen when your body is not using glucose at all so you just want to have a moderate a low to moderate amount of ketones the strips that we use have five um five levels colors, yeah. five colors and you want to be in the lower two colors mm. I think that's a really good tool as well because often when people try to lose weight and they've tried so many times it comes with like a um, a stage of momentum that comes into their soul or their heart and they're just like right damn it I'm gonna lose weight and they can overdo it and it's really unhealthy mm. and I think half of weight loss is educating patients on what's healthy weight loss mm. and, and healthy weight loss also equates to sustainable weight loss. Yeah. So having that actual stick you can pee on and look at it and say, is this a healthy level of weight loss that my body's undergoing right now? Mm. I think is really good feedback. And it also verifies for the person that they're actually burning fat as opposed to, you know, losing fluid, losing muscle mass. Um, and it can also be a good motivating point, particularly in the early stages where, you know, making transitions in your eating patterns can be really quite tricky and people, you know, might be used to stepping on the scales every day or every second day. They're like, oh, the weight's not shifting. This isn't working. But having, you know, if the, if the ketones are showing up in the urine before the weight loss starts, that it can give them some incentive to continue. A question about the sticks. Do they work differently for people who might only have, say, less than 10 kilograms excess fat? I haven't seen that to be the case. Um, I have seen that there's people's bodies have varying levels of willingness to go into ketosis. I've got patients who have ranged from you know, going into ketosis within 24 hours all the way up to people who have followed religiously 
um, a ketogenic diet and haven't gone into ketosis at all, like even after a month. Um, and every, I mean, that's an unusual case, but you know, for some people it can take mm. up to two weeks and it doesn't seem to be related to the amount of body fat that they have. Mm. And are those people, according to the lie detector scales, are those people, even if they're not in ketosis, are they losing fat and not um, yeah. muscle? Yeah. So, um, following there, for some, for some reason, there's a small percentage of people who don't mm. come up with the ketosis. Um, one of the cases that I mentioned is a really tricky case, um, really complex. There's lots of stuff going on and, um, and that particular person hasn't been able to lose weight under any circumstances. But I have had patients who have not been able to get into ketosis easily, but on, um, on measuring their body fat percentage, the body fat is, is reducing. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I wonder, I, I was reading that, you know, there's two ways the body will excrete fat and the other ways that we'll exhale it. Yeah. And I wonder if maybe they're just exhaling and if there is a breath test as well and they're less likely to be processing through the kidneys and bladder and mm. maybe. Yeah, th- I mean, there could be, I, I mean, as far as I know, there's no easy accessible way for people to monitor what's mm. happening with their breath at mm. home. But definitely, I mean, the wee sticks in Australia, they, mm. you know, they sell for like 10 bucks for a pack mm. of 50. So it's really, um, you know, an affordable motivation tool for people to use. But we should actually go into the specifics of yes. what a ketogenic How diet actually eat? is. How do you eat? What am I eating and what am I not eating? Um, so the specifics of the approach that I use, um, so it's based on, um, keeping portions reasonable, but it's, it's assessed based on the person and their, um, and their own stature and physiology. Um, and so it's using hand measurements. So you've got handfuls of vegetables. So you need to have six handfuls a day of colored veggies. Um, potato and sweet potato are too starchy. And so they're not allowed technically on the ketogenic diet. Then there's some other vegetables that are considered to be reasonably starchy and they're okay but you can only have one serve a day so one serve is like one handful so that includes things like beetroot carrot avocado i mean like a handful of avocado is like that's a lot that's of a av- whole avocado. That's a lot of avocado. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it depends if you've got a really little hand. Mm. Um, and, you know, and in, in the group that we're, that I'm running, I've got some women, like I've got one woman and she's like 150 centimeters tall, which is like, I don't know, five foot nothing. She's really quite short. Mm. Her hands are tiny, but you know, like, and she's very overweight. She's got a lot of weight to lose, but it makes sense for her to not eat as much because she's quite short. She's mm. like underneath the layers that she has, she's got quite a small frame. So um, the, the hand measurements seems to work well. So six handfuls of vegetables a day. So that works out to be about two meals where you're having like two heaped dinner plates mm-hmm. of veggies. Um, and then you're having um, a serve of protein with, with each meal. So you're having... Um, the serve of protein is the size and shape of the palm of your hand. So you've got the thickness of the palm and the actual size of the palm, and that guides you as to how much um, chicken or fish or mm-hmm. wh- whatever you might be having. 
So we're not including the fingers. Not including the fingers, not including the thumb. It's just the actual palm. Um, and then you've got some snacks if you're wanting to have them. Um, some people, particularly if you've got poor blood sugar control, need to have um, regular meals to avoid a, a blood sugar crash. Um, and they tend to be people that have quite weak spleen chi, and as their spleen chi becomes stronger, which it does by following this, then um, then they don't necessarily need the snacks as much. Um, so snacks is like if you put up your second, third, and fourth finger and you can imagine how much protein would fit onto those three fingers. So you might have some smoked salmon, you might have some of the leftover chicken that you know you cut off from your lunch, you might have some nuts. Um, so basically it's not a low-fat diet and unfortunately the 80s did a lot of damage to people's consciousness and mindset and so um, – you need to encourage people not to go for low-fat options. It doesn't need to be chicken breast day in, day out. Like you can have chicken with the skin on if you want to. You can have chicken wings and chicken drumsticks and, mm. you know, salmon that's got lots of good fats in it as well. Um, you know, even red meat's fine if, if people like to eat that. So that's the basics of it. The, the, the plan that, we, that I do with my patients, because they do have quite a lot of weight to lose, um, we do a meal replacement protein shake in the morning. Um, and so that's a, a 20 gram serve of protein that you want to have. And you can mix in with that, um, you know, a handful of spinach leaves and then you're getting one of your serves of vegetables for the day. Um, you can also, there's a, a list of fruits that are okay to have. Um, so things like bananas and mango are not on that list. And so, uh, a lot of the damp forming foods that we would consider in Chinese medicine are limited or um, avoided. Um, but, for example, a lot of people, if they're doing a meal replacement shake, would put blueberries, you know, a handful of blueberries in, and you can swap out one serve of fruit for a serve of veggies. Is there a guideline for the amounts of fat? I mean, before we were referring to a handful of avocado. Mm. I'm guessing that's not part of the vegetable count, though. Avocado. Yeah, it's it part of the vegetable count. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think because of the amount of fibre that's in there, mm. perhaps. Um, but in terms of the amount of fat, like it's a moderate amount of fat, like it's not a high-fat diet. You're not, you know, pouring mm. olive oil onto everything. Um, but just, you know, like a, a reasonable amount mm. of fat. Um, but, yeah, it's a low-carb diet. And using the keto sticks I find is really valuable. So for some people, if you follow that, and that's the starting point that I use. I mean, that's not officially – I think there's no real official documentation on what a ketogenic diet is. So that's, But that's the starting point that I use with patients. And then depending on how quickly and how readily they go into ketosis. So for some people, if they follow that to the letter, they're going to be right up into that mid to high range of ketones within a week, mm. which is too much. They're going to start losing muscle mass. Um, and so they need to add in more of those starchy vegetables, maybe a serve of sweet potato, maybe, um, you know, maybe a serve of rice even or half a serve of rice um, for people who really, like, go over, mm. you know, into over keto production. Um, but then there's some people and they'll follow that and after two weeks they might struggle to stay into in that ketosis and so, you might um, you might have them back off on 
you know, the carrots and the beetroot and the avocado and just see how they go. They might be able to tolerate it once or twice a week, but maybe no more than that. So you still need to individualize it, but there's a starting point that works quite well. I find that um, if people follow it quite religiously and they start losing weight, after they get about six weeks down the track, um, plus or minus, somewhere between four and eight weeks, um, that they can start to plateau and they can be, they can start to become a little bit dry and for women in particular, they can start to become a bit blood deficient, so dry skin, um, you know, brittle nails. Um, and so that's something to watch out for and you can either support that with a herbal medicine or that's usually when I recommend to them, hey, start implementing some, um, you know, a serve of rice or a serve of sweet potatoes once or twice a week, usually after exercise is a good time, um, and just have that a little bit extra sweet flavour to support the spleen and to support the mm. production of blood. Um, and that seems to help people to, ha- you know, to support their metabolism in a way that supports continued weight loss. I think exercise is a large part of managing that too in that if they are exercising and building muscle mass like squats, yeah, best thing to reduce the waistline um, because the thigh muscle group is so large and you can walk all day and use it, mm. then that ought to allow them to increase their portions rather than having to back off. Mm. And I know that a lot of programs that are involved with a ketogenic diet or some kind of healthy weight loss diet with exercise is that they'll do four weeks of fat burn and then move into another phase, which is four weeks of muscle build. Mm, yeah. And so the ratios would slightly change, like increase the protein a bit, but increase the workout mm, in terms of, yeah. you know, maybe a little less on the cardio and more on the muscle build. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some interesting and research. To alternate yeah. those works more healthily. Yeah, absolutely. Keep going with one. Yeah, and I think um, I think there's some really good research around the there's a correlation between the muscle mass that you have in your thighs and your average blood sugar levels and mm. your waistline measurements. So that um, particularly when you're looking at diabetes. You know, and the type of people who respond well to ketogenic diets are people who've got diabetes or they're pre-diabetic, got metabolic syndrome. Um, encouraging them to do squats is going to help to trim down the waistline, which is where the majority of that kind of fat around their organs mm. is. Hooray for squats. Yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to the next one, and this is your area of expertise, fruit Fee, the cleanse. fruit lymph cleanse. Yeah, so there is a link here with weight loss as well, so remind me if I forget that. Um, so I just want to jump back to something we were saying in an earlier episode, I think it was in part two, episode 20, uh, where we were discussing why we like the paleo diet and that it has to do with it being a diet that the human body has eaten and adjusted to for maybe a hundred thousand years. We're not sure exactly of the number of years. And prior to that, if we look at what the human body was eating from the research that I've been doing, and I know there's a lot of different opinions, so I'm not saying this is definite, but the research that I've been doing, it looks like it's most likely that when the human digestive tract actually evolved into the form it's in now, um, we were eating mostly fruits and up in the trees and still evolving as the missing link between us and our monkey ape ancestors. And at that stage, we were eating maybe 
mostly fruit and some leafy greens and maybe some nuts or seeds, not too sure. But there is a real cleansing effect that happens if you do a fruit fast. So we're not going to discuss fasts as a broad category today, but just the fruit fasting, which can really help to circulate and clean out the lymph system. So of the blood in your body makes up about 25 to 30% of your body fluids, but the lymph system is most of the rest. So there's way more lymph fluid than there is blood. And the lymph channels also quite closely correspond to the acupuncture channels. And you can kind of see how the acupuncture channels seem to occasionally switch paths between lymph pathways, blood vessel pathways, and nerve pathways. Um, and so when we're looking at lymph stagnation, we're looking at all things damp. All that kind of congestion, damp, uh, whether it's in the upper body and it's all phlegmy or whether it's in the lower body and it's just fluid retention. Um, we're, all, we're looking at lymph stagnation and whilst the blood vessels have the heart to pump the fluid around, the lymph is circulated more passively via the filtration of the kidneys. So there are things that we can do that can help to decongest the lymph and um, one of those is jumping on a rebounder for five minutes that's apparently the best five minutes a day of that so you can throw that in but with the diet what helps to circulate the lymph fluids is to do a fruit fast so for beginners you're looking at anywhere between one and three or four days and for people who are maybe doing it for you know, maybe they're doing a couple of days a month and gradually increasing it over a year. You could work up to about 10 days safely, but don't jump in at 10. And you want to use fruits that are, again, excluding the really damp, heavy fruits like banana and mango. So the fruits that really cleanse the lymph are things like grapes, watermelon, apples, and the citrus group. Citrus are really good for circulating and moving the lymph. But if you're doing a fruit lymph cleanse for three days you might want to just not eat all grapefruit for three days you might really need some watermelon or something and watermelon's so hydrating as well um, and also really helps to flush that pathway through the kidneys and mm. bladder um, we know watermelon and cranberries are really good for a UTI for example so there's that approach too so basically when we eat all the fruit what we're doing is we're cutting out fats and protein when we cut out protein after about 24 to 48 hours, and it's different for everybody, but sometime within the first 48 hours, the body then starts to cleanse. And that's why it feels a little uncomfortable, especially the first time. And that's why we, I would say to try and do it for three days if you really want to get something happening. And most of the cleansing will happen in the second half of three days. And then you can bring back in your healthy diet. Obviously don't jump straight back onto the pizza and twisties because there's no point really. <laughs> and it shocks the body too. It is. Yeah. It is a little. And you want to be really careful as well because you will start to get a little uh, off with the fairies. So I always advise for people don't do this when you're going to be doing your day job, when you're going to be going to the gym, when you're going to be driving. You want to do this when you've got like a long weekend and you're, you're actually able to sit at home, maybe do some gentle yoga, have some magnesium baths, um, just eat fruit, do some meditation and let your stuff come up because it's really emotional. And 
the things that we crave and the comfort foods that we want to reach for um, really come up, especially in the first two days. By the time you get to the third day, you probably won't be hungry. And you can eat as much fruit as you like as well. So it's quite difficult to get through a whole watermelon. You'll be full on a quarter of a watermelon. Wow, and you'd be on the toilet all day. You would be on the toilet all day, and that is going to happen as well. So maybe even by 4 p.m. on a day of apples, you you might have really loose stool, so it will really clean out the colon too. So there's ways in which I prepare for a fruit cleanse. And also for people that have a lot of phlegm and sinus, it will really start to pour out. So I had a patient that had chronic sinus and did the fruit lymph cleanse, was very healthy already going into it, did it for a week and it wasn't the first time and said that for the last maybe from about day two to day six, they felt like they their nose was just pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring the snot. And it was like all this snot came from their entire body and then it cleared up and then they went, right, okay, that's cleansed and moved back to their normal diet and a year later, no sinus. It's amazing, know. isn't it? So it's, yeah, it's such, it is a radical thing to do and I would also preface it with saying be really careful with anyone that's had any eating disorders. Mm. I don't want to recommend this kind of fasting to anyone that might go too far with it uh, and you also don't want someone who's pregnant to do it or someone who's extremely deficient and unwell. You have to build people up to do this but it can also have a really nice position. And then there's another way that you can implement it more gently, which is to own, to eat one lunch meal, like a ketogenic salad with a chicken or fish, and um, have that between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. And then outside of 3 p.m. through to the next day, 11 a.m., you're just having the fruit, and that still allows your body to cleanse um, at a slightly slower rate than doing the full fast. And that's that can be healthier for some people. So I usually try pick very carefully what level of fasting I'm going to introduce people to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also if someone is doing a weight loss diet, let's say they're doing a ketogenic diet mm-hmm. and they bust out because they go out because it's someone's birthday or whatever and they have the wine and the pizza and then that can set them back a whole week mm-hmm. in weight loss. But you can then follow up that breaking the diet with a day of watermelon and it will reset you back much faster and it will clear all those toxins out of your body faster too. Mm. And so um, I think I've had a few patients who've done this and I've had varying reports about um, things that potentially you need to watch out for Um, and we recommend doing a bit more research into it if you are considering using it with your patients. Yeah. Um, it's not a full lesson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but definitely you need to watch out for supporting the kidney chi. Um, I've had people report problems with their ears, problems with their teeth, problems with the lower back. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely um, giving herbal support during, well, before, during and after a fruit mm-hmm. cleanse I think is really important. Yeah, and, and being able to assess how much of it someone's ready for. Mm. So I would say most frequently, unless I'm dealing with someone who's already quite healthy, most frequently I'd be putting them on the the medium level where they're having that midday meal. Mm. There's also some really interesting research that I read last year 
where a guy has done some research on using a very low low protein, low fat diet to um, to make changes to the immune system. And I think the research that he did was based on a five day fast. Um, and you know, I think he actually has designed some products, and so it might be based on his products. But this would be a fruit lymph cleanse is like a DIY version of. Um, implementing his research findings mm. so he was using it as a um, you know looking at it as a potential way to support the immune system in people who have cancer people who have you know really quite full-on things going on in their immune system um, so we'll link that in the show notes the link to that research which is really interesting so it's yeah. not just that like this crazy food fad like it's actually doing really specific and targeted things in quite a powerful way um, and it's just one way of being able to access those really quick changes. Yeah, I think in, to sum it up, fasting is really, really powerful for healing the body, mm. but it needs to be very supported and people, you can't just, like I said, go to your day job and start driving around. Mm. You're going to be in a different zone and also including some leafy greens in the fasts, making maybe some strawberry and spinach smoothie so it's yeah. also part of what what can work in keeping the body's minerals up mm. and keeping the blood sugar up so they're not going to really go into that crash mm. yeah. yeah okay um so veg vegan or meat you can talk about this one you've got a lot more experience <laughs> well we I've... kind of touched on this in yeah. the last episode when i mentioned the neu 5gc glycan that's in red meats i personally don't really think you need red meat in very many cases i think you can get everything you need without it but i also likewise i also think that it's very easy to miss certain types of healthy fats in a vegan diet mm. yeah it was something that um just from my own experience i've tried in the past to be vegetarian and vegan and really just it doesn't work for my body or at that particular time didn't work. By the end of the, the week that I attempted, I was just about ready to, I don't know, do something really drastic. It was not good. I felt so highly agitated within my body. It was just the opposite of what I'd been promised and led to believe by these people going, oh, you would be so enlightened if you eat a vegetarian <laughs> diet. It just does not suit my physiology. And I think, you know, mm. when my patients ask me, you know, should I be vegetarian? What should I eat? Um, I think a good starting point is to look at what your ancestors ate. You know, what is the last seven generations of your family mm. been eating? What's your genetic heritage? What are your, what is your genetics and your body expecting you to eat? Like if you've come from Icelandic Vikings, um, you know, it's not necessarily going to work for you to have a diet that's filled with lentils and tropical fruit. And vice versa, like if you've got, um, you know, if your ancestors are from um, from Pacific Islands, then, you know, eating a whole bunch of yak meat and root vegetables is probably not going to suit your body. Mm. And, yes. And I think it's important to honour that. Like you can have the ethical considerations and, that you know, obviously there's a lot of things to consider in that regard, but from a physiological level, I think we can't, um, we need to honour that there are requirements that we need mm. to fulfil. 
Absolutely. And I see this come up a lot with gluten, which we won't go into again, but that's in, what is it? Uh, Episode 19. Episode 19. Okay, organic. How important is it to eat organic? Well, I think it's really important. And I think this, I mean, this for me also ties in with the whole, you know, vegetarian, vegan argument. A lot of people are concerned about um the ethics of the way that animals are treated. And one of the things that I really like about the organic certifications and the biodynamic certifications is the way that animals are treated um, and the types of things that they're exposed to during during their lives and even the way, even the considerations that are put into place around the way that they're slaughtered. Mm. Um, And so I recommend to all of my patients that organic if you can only um, if you can only afford to do, or if it's only practical for you to do part of your um, diet as organic, that animal products should be organic. Mm, I agree. I'm a big lover of organics for all the reasons, not just my body, but the earth and the soil, um, and that the flavor, the vitamin, the nutrients, the love. Mm. You know, the love of that connection with the fact that we can farm things this way. And also if we look at why we need en masse so many chemicals, well, we only because we're not eating locally as well, mm. seasonally. Yeah. Um, so the body, and this brings it back to the Shiliao and the Chinese medicine, the body really wants what's local and in season. And if your geography really doesn't match your DNA ancestry, as Claire was saying, more than that, could be an interesting play around, but I also have found that um, what the body requires of food and nutrition really changes if you really change your geography and climate. Mm. So the diet that I thrive on in the tropics is quite different to the diet that I thrive on in the temperate zone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I just wanted to mention one more thing about organic based on some studies I've been doing into genetic mutations is that it's really important for a woman who is preparing for pregnancy and who is pregnant to be eating organic and for a baby up until about age one because there is a gene called the PON1 gene, P-O-N-1, so you could Google that. And that gene has a lot to do with assisting our body in dealing with the byproducts of non-organic farming like glyphosate. And you can also Google glyphosate and you'll find a whole huge storm of reasons why that's bad for us. Um, and so in a human body, we the PON1 gene doesn't actually start working until we're over one. Mm. So all of the non-organic food that a woman is eating prior to the pregnancy that's still in her body, the byproducts, during the pregnancy and during breastfeeding and and what the child's eating until they're one, that baby, fetus, child, they have no uh, inbuilt protection against glyphosates and high levels of nitrates and other chemicals that are in the residues of pesticide use. Mm. Yeah, so I find that's quite motivating as well if you're working in fertility and pregnancy. Mm. Yeah, really good reason to just minimise the amount of stuff that you're exposed to. Mm. Yeah. 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 Raw or cooked? Mm. (laughs) 
This is something, I mean, we've we've covered this in previous episodes, but this is something that I've had a really big change in my opinion in the during the course of my years in clinic. And I used to be very anti, you know, the naturopathic approach and the, you know, just the the general approach of having raw foods and just that idea of supporting spleen chi by having cooked foods. Um, but it's definitely something that I've um, I'm very willingly admit that um, I've changed my mind on that, and I I think that it's something to I just I just think that we need to be a little bit more judicious in the way that we mm. that we do things, and um, I think that for the most part that raw foods um, suit a lot of people a lot of the time. I remember some advice that I was given by one of my very first ever Chinese medicine practitioners I had and and she would say that, um, you know, you can eat salads and things but have it towards the end of the meal rather than the first thing that your stomach gets. You know, if you're going to – the first thing that you put in, have it as something that's warm and cooked so that you've um, – mm. and that, you know, that was her kind of compromise on being able to combine those ideas of um, assisting the spleen chi with – or the spleen yarn with um, with with cooked foods, but then also having some raw as well. Mm, yes, for the listeners, we did an episode where we did some more detail on this um, to do with the spleen and the pancreas. It was episode eleven. If you want to go back and find that, but in general, I I um, had an experience where I thought raw food would damage my spleen chi because that's what they say, but really I think that's an, uh, an unformed interpretation mm. of, the, of the discussion about raw foods and spleen chi and cold foods and spleen chi. And um, I was inspired by someone um, to try raw food, and I did, and it was an absolute revelation, and my spleen chi was better than it had ever been, and all my spleen chi deficient damp, which was mild, cleared up um and I I just had so much more vitality and it was because I was able to make the differentiation that the part of my spleen chi was deficient was the live enzyme function of my pancreas so episode 11 we discuss uh that in more detail but I think also it's got a lot to do with looking get get to know what kind of nutrients are made available when you eat, for example, raw greens versus cooked greens? Mm. So when you cook your spinach, um, you might get more iron out of it, but when you have it raw leafy, you actually get all the folates. Mm. So what does someone need? And you get the live enzymes. What does someone need? And that can be a little bit of education and research, um, but we definitely – do an alchemy when we prepare our food, if we cook it in any way. So barbecuing is different to steaming, and we have that in our Shirley And the foods already have all different thermal values. So if you want to make a warm salad, maybe you're going to grate ginger through it or cinnamon, putting cinnamon in things. And I think it's also related to time of year, season, time of day uh, for women, time of the menstrual cycle. And that whether or not we cook things or have them raw, that's not necessarily an indication of the food's nature. Mm. Mm. If you are eating all raw, cold stuff straight from the fridge, then and you're not adding any warming spices, then 
of course, that's cold food. Yeah. But raw food is not necessarily cold food. Mm. Bite into a piece of ginger and you'll find that out pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I add a big pinch of salt to the idea of raw food when it comes to people that have problems with their thyroid um, and that the, class, well, the, the brassica foods, um, kale, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, etc. and then there's other foods that have got um, thiocyanates in them. They're usually best to have um, cooked to deactivate the goitrogenic effects mm. in them. Mm. Um, I think there's a nice way you can combine everything so that you get the most benefits yeah. from the foods for that particular patient. Mm. And it is so much education. Yeah. I mean, to have a really thorough knowledge of all of these things, you're going to spend a lot of time reading about it. So that's for those who are quite passionate about food and nutrients. But I really believe that nutritional medicine can be the future of medicine. Mm. And we at a time when we can also really combine so much of the ancient wisdom about food and the grandma's wisdom about food, you know, mm. that's really coming through. Like we were discussing that someone who has a really knowledgeable grandma is going to know how to make a bone broth and how to soak their lentils before cooking them. And, and the wisdom of Chinese medicine with the thermal values and seasonal values, we can combine all this with modern research and actually support the human evolution that's capable of our bodies to get to another level of health, which I think we're, we're kind of tapping into at this time. Yeah. I think there's so many considerations that um, and richness that come from from our Chinese medicine approach, particularly with the thermal natures and the even the channel tropism and what you know which organs are affected by which foods, and that certainly um, brings a lot more depth and I think intelligence into mm. any dietary um, considerations that you're giving to your patients. You know whether you're saying to someone you know, do I want you to follow a paleo diet, I want you on a low histamine diet, I want you to have, you know, gluten-free. Within that we can still add a lot of tailoring so that people are really getting the best of both worlds. Mm. Yeah. I think having access to some seasonal charts for your geography, wherever you are in the world, uh, you can find lists from farmers or online, you know, what grows in this region in this, this season. Mm. And I think sometimes even providing those charts to patients and say put them on your fridge, say put the March chart up in March and when you're hungry or you're planning the shopping or the dinner, look at all the fruit and vegetables and things that grow this month that are in season and try and make your meals from those lists within also the the guidelines that we've given. And I think also, you know, for some people that if they don't have the time to do that, if you if you have a, um, a, a service that supplies a weekly box of seasonal veggies, then you'll get what's in season because mm. they're providing you with the freshest and most economical food, which, of course, is always um, – the food that's in season. So that's an easy way to to access that same information is just yeah. to get a little surprise each week when you open up your box to find what's there. And the organic farmer's market. Yeah. Yeah, especially if it's, if it's definitely an organic farmer's market. Yes. They'll only be selling you what they grew this week. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. 
Anything else you want to add? Uh, I think, I mean, you and I, we really just need to rein it in. We could talk all day <laughs> and I think we've probably, three episodes is enough for now. We can yeah. come back and revisit some of the others. We can maybe do an episode on fasting later on. Right. And someone, we had a listener question based on episode 11 about the spleen and pancreas where we touched on raw foods as well. One of our listeners asked what I was eating when I was eating raw food. And to break it down, um, we won't have time for that in this episode, but we got your question and we'll get to it sometime. Thank you. Great. Well, thanks for listening today. And we'd love to hear about what you're doing with your patients. And if you've got any expertise or wisdom that you can share with us and the other listeners, we'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page. Yes, you can just keep it the discussion going there. And I know discussions about food can get quite passionate, so please go for it. Great, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.